0: fortunately, this is why getting a career started as young as I did, I was fortunate enough to have my ass wiped across the floor quite a few times to learn that making others successful is my number one job as a leader.
1: What's up tribe? Welcome back to the podcast that brings you closer to the world's biggest risk takers and enemies of the status quo. This podcast is for people who want to take the plunge in life, but need a little nudge. I'm your host, Coach Darren K. Roberts, and I went from Harvard Law to the NFL by the grace of God and good old-fashioned grit. The voice you heard at the top was none other than Jason Feldman, Director of Global Innovation with a small mom-and-pop shop known as Amazon. Buckle up and get ready for a wild ride with Jason Feldman. All right, Jason. So let me ask you this. If I were to walk into your high school, grab you out of your 11th grade English class and say, Jason, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would the answer be?
0: Oh, my God. I wanted to be a movie producer. What? I did. I wanted to be a movie producer. That's what I thought I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a movie producer. It turns out that would not have been the best move for me. But that at the time was – I genuinely – I'll tell you why, though. Because in 10th grade, if you would ask me that question, right before I started geometry, I wanted (laughs) to be a surgeon. I was – in fact, I was convinced my entire life since I was a child and I was operating on my sister's stuffed animals. I wanted to be a surgeon. And then I got to 10th grade geometry and I could not figure out how to how to size a triangle. And as it turned out, they put me into the first remedial class I was ever in in my entire life. Most of the kids there were high from first thing in the morning. um, And I just thought I was in a completely different world and I was going to get through in remedial class. But that was the end of my surgeon career. Hold
1: hold on. So we could have been the beneficiaries (laughs) of Jason Feldman, the heart surgeon.
0: Yeah, but I'm a little afraid, though, because if the triangle sizing thing was important <laughs> to surgery, it might not have turned out as one. Well. But, I, you know, somehow or another, the great powers that be in this universe directed me to something else. And then I thought from surgeon to movie producer, that's what was going to happen. But it didn't.
1: <laughs> OK, so movie producer, talk about this. What were like were there some movies that really inspired you to do this? Or did you see some interview? <laughs> like, what? How did this come to be?
0: I don't know. I think it was because <laughs> I was – uh it was it, I was around I think I was 12 or 13 years old you know I'm I, I'm a nice Jewish boy I have a bar mitzvah it, we kind of fake the whole thing it's not a real thing because I wasn't ultra religious but my parents felt obligated that I should have one so it was good because it turned out I got a lot of money from different relatives and friends who <laughs> knew that I had this passion for making TV shows or movies and so I took all that bar mitzvah money and I invested it and some of it I took to have a video camera. And I started making movies. So at 13 years old, I decided I was going to make movies. And that's kind of what got me going. I just never knew how to turn that into a career. And funny enough, all the way through my education, I kept on finding ways to produce and create shows. And I got a little bit of young press. And uh, you know, someone at one point or another called me a young Spielberg. I don't really remember (laughs) why, because what I was doing was not that Spielberg-esque. But, uh, you know, that i somewhere along the way, it just it became a passion. Mm -hmm. I who's to say why I just followed it.
1: He's followed it. Let me ask you this. And listen, I'm a you know, I'm a black Baptist kid. We don't have any bar mitzvahs. (laughs) You know, when we come of age, people just sort of give you a chicken dinner and they're like, go on your way. (laughs) Do you remember kind of a ballpark number of how much money you got?
0: Uh, $2,500. And I actually do remember that because first of all, young Jewish kids can count. And, uh, that was, that was the one thing I knew how to do, whether I was doing the triangle thing or not in geometry, but I was bound to determine to also make that $2,500 a million dollars. That was the other little objective that I had too. I was like, you know what, I'm going to invest this. And I didn't know exactly in what, but I was going to invest this and I was going to make something of it. And I actually took, it's funny enough while I knew I was getting money for this bar mitzvah thing. And that was kind of the prize. Um, And don't read into it because it wasn't that I was religious or didn't respect it. I just really didn't care that much, frankly, at the time. Uh, But I knew that if I could get a young start and didn't have to depend on my parents to put me through life and I could actually run my own life my way and I had my own resources to do it, even at that age, that I was going to be able to follow any dream I made for myself. That was (laughs) was like what was my motivating factor at that point.
1: Wow. So let me ask you this. Talk us through the college application process for Jason Feldman. I mean, what does this (laughs) operation look like?
0: Well, it was funny because I actually only wanted to – my parents were bribing me. They were they were bribing me to go to a school in Florida. They said, if you'll go to a school in Florida, we will provide – and by, by the way, we grew up in a nice middle-class family. My parents actually worked up to middle class because they gave up everything, filed bankruptcy when I was um, eight years old, and I remember them packing up a station wagon and – literally giving up our whole house in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to move into our my uncle's townhouse in Miami until they could get back on their feet. So we hmm. I watched my parents really earn back life to to the point where we could call ourselves solidly middle class. But we get to we get to Florida and you know, they try to make sure that we don't see anything in terms of suffering or wanting. They really worked hard to give us a pretty decent life. And it comes time for college and I'm thinking expense, expense, expense. I got to be sensitive to this. I got to be sensitive to this. And everywhere that I really wanted to go. And by the way, in my mind, it was going to be George Washington University in Washington, D.C. That's where I wanted to go.
1: Wait, Hold on. Parents said Florida. You said, you know, what? I I'm said, actually going to go to Washington.
0: Yeah, I want to go to George Washington University where it's, by the way, 40 something 1000 dollars a year. And my parents are saying, how about we'll get you a BMW and a condo if you'll go to University of Florida because we're pretty sure you get a scholarship. And I said, I don't want to go to Florida. I, I have no desire to go to Florida. Every one of my friends is going to Florida. Why would I do that? I don't want to go. I want to be different. And by the way, that's not where I want to be. I want to, by this time, I wanted to be in government. <laughs> I want to be in the foreign service. That was what my career was going to be at that point. I switched from movie producer to foreign service. And uh, and they said, you know what, follow your dreams, see if you can get in. And I did. Uh, But that application process was all about uh, God, I don't even remember now, but I was writing essays like crazy. I do remember that time. I was okay on the good old SAT and I was all right on, uh, you know, on putting enough of a show together that I could go to school there. I don't know if I'd get in today, though, Darren. Truth of the matter is, oh, a here. lot of these schools are so tough. I, I don't even know how. I don't know how you got into Harvard. I mean, I, I, I know you.
1: I, I <laughs> don't know either. And in fact, my wife doesn't know <laughs> no one around me. Well, it took me four times. It took me four attempts. I got waitlisted for four that. years. So. <laughs> I tell that story a
0: lot. I actually tell your story like as if it's mine. I've, I've made you like my brother from another mother. I love your story. I think that is perseverance at its greatest.
1: Or just sheer madness. I mean, it's or madness, it depends yeah, or on what or they were. ever. Yeah. So a, a <laughs> freshman at GW walking around the nation's capital. What are you like? I mean, <laughs> oh my
0: gosh! Let me tell you, this is the best thing. So I get to school and I decide I've always wanted to be a tour guide. Don't ask where this came from. I don't know. There must be some kind of a trip in my head about why I think I'm going to be a tour guide. I've been to Washington, D.C., like maybe once before in my life, but I wanted to be a Washington, D.C. tour guide. And the university, of George Washington University, bought a double-decker tour bus. I saw this double-decker tour bus, so I wrote to the head of the department that was responsible for <laughs> admissions tours, and I said, I need to be a tour guide. And they said, well, that would be great. It's a very special program to get into that. Into that. But by the way, we don't, we don't bring freshmen in. You're, you're too new. We, we need you to at least be a junior or senior. Anyway, (laughs) my campaign was endless, and by the time I was done, I was the first freshman that had ever been allowed to be. I think they called it a star, which was one of whatever that stood for, but a tour guide. (laughs) And then I got to write the tour. I wrote the actual tour for the Washington, D.C., to GW Washington, D.C. tour on this double-decker bus, and I was giving tours in the city in my first month and a half of going to GW. I didn't know what – there was no Google at the time, by the way, so all my research was going to every monument I could. I was giving a tour. I had the microphone in my hand, sweating my ass off on a double-decker tour bus doing tours. Look to your left that's the mint and here's what ha- you know crazy. so listen so
1: there i'm just i'm just picturing oh, you this- if that
0: wasn't enough that wasn't enough because i also was telling the counselors at the time this is the arrogance that a young freshman jason feldman had i was telling the counselors that i really wanted to study languages and so i had eight languages that i said it would be better for me to do that than math or geography so we should and then i sat down with them and they said this is not Berlitz. you came to gw so that, that doesn't work like that so yeah I I, was, I had to get my ass handed to me a little bit <laughs> when I was younger. Uh,
1: so what did you end up majoring in?
0: So in the end, I majored in international communications. Uh, I ended up finishing my undergraduate degree in a little less than three years. It was a little frightening. I was going to school full time and then at night and then during the summers <laughs> because I wanted to get done. And I got done so fast that I applied for my master's program while I was still finishing my undergraduate program, which was also at GW. So I did all of it in about four years. Wow, So I got my master's in public administration because remember, I got to Washington and said, I am going to work in the White House. And then when that didn't work, I am going to work in the State Department. And I did and, and got started there and realized there is no way I'm going to be a government bureaucrat. That would be
1: terrible. <laughs> I mean, talk about somebody taking a 180 and going private sector. So that experience alone... That was enough. That was enough for you. You said, you know what? I'm going to pay my taxes on time and I'm going to be a good citizen, but no more of this.
0: I called in Audible. <laughs> <laughs> Something you know about. <laughs> this is not gonna be me. I am not going to have this spotted shirt and tie and I'm not going to live in this building. This foggy bottom State Department is a mess. I know. Nothing to do with this stuff. I had some fun experiences. It was fun. I got to do some really neat things and had and had some lifetime experiences, but I absolutely did not want that kind of a job. And so I pivoted.
1: Wow. So then you become a consultant. What was the transition like? So when you made that pivot, you know, how Was it difficult to transition? What were people telling you who were kind of watching this process unfold?
0: Yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, well, it depends who's watching. At this point, my family is kind of, you know— Wow what is what's, what are you doing? You know what's going on? And they're by the way, very supportive. They, they, I, I'd always kind of gotten through. I never really cracked a book in high school that much. They never understood how I got through high school. and then you know here I am finishing college, and I, I told them I was going to save them some money, and I kind of did in the end because my undergraduate and my master's got done in what four years would have been you know normally and And you know so I, I'm doing stuff that's kind of working, but I, everybody that was sort of watching was like, okay, what comes next and, and for me, I really almost didn't care. I had a vision in my mind. That was the thing. At that age, I knew, by the way, I'm checking boxes as I go. I'm checking off what I knew at that point and all the things that I still didn't know. It wasn't because I was in a hurry to get stuff done. I think when I was younger, I was. But it was more because I needed to learn. I knew that there were a lot of things I didn't know, and that if I checked these boxes, I would be sure that I was passing a toll gate to not have to do it again. So if I didn't like something, I was going to damn well be expert in trying it so that I knew that that was something I didn't want to do so I could clear that out of my path. Okay, hold
1: on, hold on, hold on right there. I'm sorry, I've got to interrupt you. You realize that this mode of thinking is the exact opposite of 90% of the world's population.
0: I didn't know any better. That's the thing. Like in the State Department, I, I I, knew I was going to work I, – I said to you you know, I was going to George Washington University because I was going to live in a dorm that was going to be three blocks from the White House because hmm. I wanted to work in the White House, and I could not get into that White House to save my life. The best job I could find was to be in the letter-writing office of first George Bush's presidency, and I went to an interview at that letter office, and I was arrogant enough. Then I tell you I'm not anymore. I, I'm going to correct this all later, but because everything up to this point has made me sound like I'm the most arrogant son of a bitch, but I'm not. <laughs> um, but I get into this letter office, and I'm like, you know, I want to use this as a place to, to to really build a career. I don't want to write letters forever, but I want to start. And all this woman is doing is looking at me, going like, "Yeah, we just need somebody to write letters." <laughs> so I blew that. Um, so I fixed it. I fixed it. I, I learned that that was not a good tactic for an interview. So I went to the State Department, and I found my way in. I just knew if I could get inside the building. And I could show somebody that I could do anything, that that would be my pass in. And that's what I did, and I got in. And I thought that's what I wanted to do, and I tried everything. And once I tried it and realized this is exactly not what I want to do, there's nothing about this that I want to do, that I was able to just disqualify that and say, okay, so it's
1: not that, so what is it?
0: And. No, I don't know where that came from. I just knew I had to do it. It was a compulsion within me to, to push.
1: See, I think that's so valuable because I, you know, I teach three hundred students a year, most of them freshmen, and everyone gets to college and they have these helicopter. You're not one of these, I'm sure, but they have these helicopter parents who are telling them exactly what they need to major in, and they're going to be the world's best engineer. And then they get here and they feel like they have to get it right. On the yeah, first no. attempt, and I always tell them, I say, "Listen, there is as much value in crossing something off the list as there is in circling it."
0: Your advice is so spot on, and I didn't even realize it. Maybe it's now that I'm kind of realizing that at this point in my life what you're saying is right. You're telling these kids the right thing. It's qualified. The parents it's... hate
1: me, though. The parents hate me, Jason. They hate me.
0: I wouldn't hate you. You know, I think <laughs> here's the thing. I have I've got 15 year old triplets. All right, so this is this is coming from a little bit of. Little bit of experience now having these teenagers and I realize as they're now in high school that I started doing what you're describing. Helicoptering them. You gotta get in a club. You gotta try this. You gotta do But you know what I've realized? I've come at it the wrong way. It's not that I even care that they're in the club. It's that I care that they're finding out that they have a passion because right now their passion involves a stupid little metal device with a glass screen in their hand. And all they do all day long is talk to people or snap people or whatever the hell they're doing on that thing. (laughs) And I feel like they're just wasting their lives away. But what they're discovering is who they are. And I'm not being too holy about this because the truth of the matter is I think they are wasting a tremendous amount of their life at this moment. But, th- but if they'll try things and they won't do it because of me, they're doing it because they just need to know for themselves and they just have a little taste of what I'm trying to describe, hmm. I feel like it'll be um, maybe a trigger moment for them to think a little bit like me, yeah. a little bit.
1: That's yeah. all. Yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah, I, I I really you know, I'm kind of fighting two battles because I'm in the classroom dealing with eighteen, nineteen year olds. I'm at home dealing with seven and five year olds. And I'm the same way. Like, hey, did you sign up for a club? I'm like my my kids in the second grade. It's like we don't have clubs, Dad. I'm like, okay, All right, well, start one, damn it, right? Yeah, it's, start something. <laughs> yeah. Be a leader. Do something. We, we gotta show some entrepreneurship on your application. So let's okay. go ahead and get this thing. You need these seed money. I'm here for you. you now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so get back. All right. So you go from public sector to private sector. Become a consultant. When when do you get the? You make the move to Home Depot. When does that happen? How does it go down?
0: Yeah, this is this is one of those moments again where I was. Uh, impetuous. But I I feel like the impetuous part, I define it as my passion. But I decided that as much as I loved Washington, D.C., I needed to know that I could exist outside of this world because I I was starting to realize that it wasn't going to be government. So there was really no reason to be there. So uh, at the time, I started reaching out to a consulting group in Atlanta. I wanted to live in Atlanta. The Olympics were going to be in Atlanta. I had some family in Atlanta. I thought Atlanta is where I want to (laughs) be. And uh, as it happens, and this is kind of the funny part, my uncle was one of the original founders of Home Depot. Huh. Didn't know that I was actually at the time interested in the company, but the head of HR had reached out to me because I had made an inquiry and started to send me a note back and forth about, would you consider, they were starting a new group that was kind of an internal consulting group and he, it just kind of was a match. And then my uncle found out that I was interested and then that kind of made it a thing. And I really had no, I was going to go be a consultant in Atlanta. I was interviewing and getting accepted for a job with a consulting company at the time, but turned out my entire career launched because I went into retail.
1: And you ended up spending fourteen years there.
0: Fourteen years. And boy was that a learning that was like a PhD in life for me at that age.
1: Lessons learned. I know it's a long period of time, but any kind of lessons stand out from that tenure with Home Depot? You know what? It's
0: growing up, it's it's developing my leadership principles. You know, it's funny. All these years later now at Amazon, and I have a I have a cool gig here, but we, we run our business at Amazon off of this idea of these leadership principles. But Home Depot, many, many, many years ago, the founders of Home Depot, Arthur Blank and Bernie Marcus, really started the company on the idea of these true customer-obsessed principles about how they would run their business. And that's where I learned how to be a leader. And it's also how I learned to put the customer first. And really in life, those have kind of been – You know, a couple of my main mantras. If you put the customer first in your life, and that customer, you know, it's a little bit metaphorical when I say this, but, you know, you could be my customer. My kids could be my customer. I know it sounds a little bit silly when I say it, but. If you have that kind of obsession for leaning in and being a leader who starts with that customer and then you work backwards from that customer into figuring out how you can do things better, smarter, faster, but ultimately with them in mind, to me, that's how I sort of built everything. So over the course of years, I learned through some pretty hard knocks. Over my career to learn how to be a better leader, how to be a better manager, and how to ultimately be a better person. I I really did because Hmm. Home Depot allowed me a chance to grow up. I was around a lot of people who started a company that became wildly successful but had no business skills whatsoever. They were just great retailers. And then as that company got smarter over time and the leadership changed and they started bringing in experts from the outside, it raised the bar and I had to kind of learn how to adapt. And I fortunately was one of those that could, but it was a starting point for me and it really gave me a chance to grow. Hmm.
1: So I'm thinking, you know, there are a lot of folks in the tribe who are entrepreneurs and at some point, Jason, when I stop having kids, I'm going to, (laughs) the next book is going to be entitled The Scale Fetish. OK. And every I mean, you know, and I'm an advisor from some startups and every meeting is like, OK, so how are you going to scale? So how are you going to scale? So how are you going to scale? And it's like this this concentration and infatuation with the customer a lot of times gets sort of lost in the quest to just grow exponentially. And to hear you talk about just how central the customer was for the Home Depot experience, I think it's a good reminder for folks who are either working in big companies, small companies, doing their own thing. It's important to always go back and make that the starting point.
0: You know, and maybe I should actually help co-author the book with you. It's funny because <laughs> this, is, this is one where, you know, once again, and Amazon is a perfect example for it, but we, in this world, to do anything, you have to be globally minded. And scale is, while it's sounding a little bit more and more cliche, you know, as sort of the business mantra of the day, it really isn't. Because the truth of the matter is, profit is the motive that most every business has. And the only way to drive profit is through some form of automation, scale, and ultimately simplicity. Because if you continue to try to invent and simplify a business off of adding human resources to do it, you will never win. Mm -hmm. You cannot have the capacity, the mental capacity, the physical capacity, the capital capacity to grow if it involves people. So you have to use people for the intelligence that they have, and you have to figure out how to leverage the most out of those people to be able to deliver, but you've got to figure out how to use machines. And by the way, you know, machines and processing power and the fact that the cloud itself has the you know, unlimited capacity that it does should simplify the idea that all the work that we were used to giving humans to do can go to machines which can be smart enough to learn and do for you and help you to scale and and ultimately take away the wasted tasks that human beings are paid for and let humans focus on the heavy lifting.
1: You know, but I think in a lot of situations that I'm going back to the football world and, you know, the money ball analytics movement that first started in baseball, then migrated slowly into football. It should have made our jobs as coaches a lot easier because we had instant analyses at a touch of a button, right? Yeah, yeah. But what ended up happening was that we just found more meaningless tasks to add, right? So it's like like we we knew we had additional time, but for some reason, there was this tendency to want to justify our existence by adding more meaningless tasks so we could say, oh, look, we're in the office until 1 a.m., so damn it, we must be working hard. It sounds good for that to, at some point, lead to efficiency and then to kind of help grow but i think a lot of times we use that added efficiency and savings of time to add on crap that we probably should yes yes well that's and that's the thing if
0: you don't think differently and you don't look around the corners for ways to do things better and then figure out that you're also wasting time coming up with new things to do you know then you're not simplifying anything and that ultimately is what i'm what i'm really talking about is that you have to, you know, to innovate and and to find invention, uh, you have to always find ways to simplify. There's just a natural tendency of saying, okay, so now I have email, so I don't have to write a letter anymore. So now I can get 10,000 emails a day. And by the way, I'll send more emails, which somewhere in the world, we've all forgotten, the more you send, the more you get, you know, it's kind of this never ending prophecy here that you kind of just create for yourself. But you know, you have to find some, some mechanism in your life to say, I cannot, I mean, you, listen, you're a father of, So, I can't even keep count. Every time I turn on Facebook, (laughs) you've had another kid. You're right. It's five,
1: and that's it. We're we're, we're staying put.
0: (laughs) We'll see. We'll see what happens. There's got to be another post. You need some more traffic or something. You're going to get another kid. But at some some point, I think you have to decide look, I want to be a great father. There's just some things I'm just not going to take time to do. So, I'm going to stop doing those things. They're important to me, but I'm going to stop doing them. You know, I think the same thing applies at your job. We can't grow to a trillion dollar business at Amazon if we continue to do things with human beings. There just aren't enough people in the world. We can't hire enough people to do everything. So we've got to use smart machines to do some of that stuff. And then you have to have the diligence and you have to have the responsibility and at some point the high judgment to say, we're also not going to add new things just because we can. We're going to take that capacity and we're going to apply it to going deeper on the things that really matter to us. And that's truly where scale starts, at least for us. You generate new ideas at a level of strategy where you're saying, look I, – and I can't do the sports metaphors. I want to with you so badly. But look, <laughs> I'm this gay Jew from South Florida who you know, basically has to keep up with his kids playing like Little League and stuff, and I can't even figure out how the ball moves across like, a court. or a, I don't know the difference between a touchdown and a home run. I just use those metaphors when it sounds – but all I would say is – the scale thing comes from having this this value judgment of saying this is going to drive my end goal faster, bigger than I would allow myself to do otherwise because the tools can help me to do it. No tool is mm-hmm. going to make me a magician, but it's going to certainly empower me to be smarter and faster, and I'm not going to allow other stuff to fill the void.
1: Hmm. I'm going to hit the fast-forward button because you said something that I want to talk about. Today, right now what are you good at? Like in your current job, right? <laughs> what, what, I mean, and th- th- I think it's interesting because if you look at your track record, I mean, you've been at some big time brands, Body yeah. Shop and Hanes, and now you go, you're at Amazon, which is the behemoth on the block. And we're talking about time and sort of how you allocate that. If you were to dissect what you think your core strengths are, what would they be?
0: I believe that, making others successful is my number one job as a leader. (laughs) So I spend the most time earning trust of others and trying really, really hard to be a leader who takes ownership, but who gives everybody the opportunity around him to be super successful. That is my obsession because I have learned in my career and I learned it at a young age when I thought it was all about me doing it and I learned – fortunately, this is why getting a career started as young as I did, I was fortunate enough to have my ass wiped across the floor quite a few times to learn that my ego needed to be checked and it was. And I learned that it was much more important that others around me could be as successful and have the opportunities to achieve as much as anything I was able to do on my own. And that if I could clear the obstacles and make it possible for them to achieve more than they thought possible for themselves, that I would create an environment that would ultimately be not only good for both of us, but ultimately for whatever business I was involved in. And it paid off. Wow. It truly paid off. And so I'm I would say what I'm best at is is being able to see the big picture. Uh, I can get into the weeds, and I do. I love it. I get my, my fingernails as dirty as anybody. I love doing the work. I love doing the work. But I would say that I love finding ways to make other people successful, and I pride myself on trying to be the inspiration that helps to get people to that level of creation for themselves.
1: Hmm. Well, you took over the position as the Director of Global Innovation for Amazon, okay?
0: Crazy title. Isn't that it's, silly? It's
1: right? It's like a—it's— <laughs> it's, it's it's almost redundant, right? Because I'm like Amazon and global <laughs> innovation. I was like, are these the same thing? But like you walk in the first day, I, I would love to hear like what it sounds like. and feels yeah. like to walk into a place like that on the first day with this sort of title.
0: Here's the best. So we, I walk in the first day. My boss is in some kind of an important meeting my very first day. So, so she's not there. So she sends the only guy. So there's this guy that was hired. So I was going to be the first hire, but because it took me a while to get here, this other guy comes in. He was already inside Amazon but had taken this job. And so his name was Rotom, Rotom Hershko, Israeli guy. Fantastic, right? But I meet him on the first day. So I go to orientation for four hours on day one. By the way, everything here at Amazon is all about day one. It's always day one. Just read Jeff, Jeff Bezos' shareholder letter. It's always about day one. So here it is, day one for me. I walk out of training after four hours, and there's Rotom holding a sign like it's the airport. Jason Feldman. <laughs> if you know anything about Israelis, and this is hysterical because this is this is the funniest thing. Rotom is about as as blunt as any human being on the earth can be. So he goes, hi, I'm Rotom. I'm supposed to take you to lunch. So, <laughs> fantastic, Rotom. What do you want to go eat? He's like, I don't know. You like Indian? I'm like, yeah, it's great. Two Jews, Indian food. Sounds like a joke. <laughs> So we go, we meet, we talk. He's like, I'm not sure what we're doing. I said, well, that's good because neither am I. And for the first uh, – from that first day all the, way, uh, all the way for the first couple of months, we, we sat in my office. And uh, my office is covered in glass, and we took a whiteboard kind of approach and started writing markers about things we were going to do. And neither one of us knew what the hell we were going to do. And for the first three or four months, it was just us. And we said, at some point, we got to have a team. And he's like, yep, we need to have a team. And at some point, we should figure out what we're going to do. And he said, yeah, we could have a mission. We should have a mission. <laughs> and at some point, somebody should recognize that we're innovating something. He's like, yeah, that's what I'm wondering, too. When are we going to innovate something? And that's kind of how it started. But uh, the long and short of it is, you know, a couple of two and a half years later, uh, we actually did a tremendous amount. We launched a program at Amazon called Amazon Launchpad, mm-hmm. which is for to help startups come out of the ground. Literally, people that have invented a new product and startup companies from all over the place, you've probably seen or heard of some of the product. We helped them uh, not only be able to get funded, but to grow their businesses into multi-million dollar enterprises, which was a lot of fun. We launched new businesses around the world in multiple countries. Uh, Since then, I took on two other teams. We're launching Amazon in Australia, and we're helping uh, grow our new business that we acquired in the Middle East. And uh, We work across 17 countries. We've got a team of about 45 people. Rotom has since been promoted one of my favorite things of the last two and a half years and he's now running a multi-billion dollar business for us and it's uh it's a blast so we do we do all kinds of cool stuff can't tell you about it but we do lots
1: of cool stuff. <laughs> I know I know. and hey, listen this um this day one you know your boss always talks about you yeah. know it's day one and day two is stasis which I love yeah. right so yeah. day one is is it's always day one you're always thinking about reinvention and and improvement and it seems like you've taken that approach in your personal life you just got your pilot's license
0: yeah about a year year ago I, I finally i did it when i was 16 i just couldn't afford to keep it up i had to get a car and so i couldn't drive and fly at the same time so uh <laughs> i ended up finally deciding you know what to hell with it i give my kids everything it's time for me to do something so i did i finished it now i fly everywhere
1: you fly everywhere that's yeah, great so how many hours are you logging a week would you say
0: Oh well, it's been a lot of. I have a lot of work travel, but I like you know. I, I I've I've tried to fly a couple hours a week on average in the course of a month. I would say I'm probably flying about mm, five to ten hours a month, which is pretty good. I'd, it'd be better if I if I didn't have to work.
1: Yeah, yeah, that kind of it's a, <laughs> a little bit of a glitch. Yeah, that's it. So. Talk about the triplets. You, you mentioned them, Maddie, Sebastian, Ben, and I love hearing sort of the um, the parenting tips. Um, how do you and Travis kind of parent these kids? And you're both on the road quite a bit. And I mean, how does that work?
0: Ugh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's. I just. I these days I keep thinking about. So in four years they go away to college. Hmm. That'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? The best I, I tell you what, it's been a learning experience. I, I'm only kidding, an exasperation. It's just that, you know, with 15 year olds, you're constantly being tested for something and now they're trying to learn how to drive and it's just a it's a constant battle to try to give them all a little bit of individual time to kind of be their own selves with us individually. But I would say this. I have finally come to the conclusion that you just have to let them be who they are, Hmm. and you have to let them fail. Now, this is the thing that I realize many of my contemporaries have not done a good job of, and part of it might be out of just sheer exhaustion. But I've decided that they're going to do what they're going to do, and they're going to be successful despite anything I push or force upon them as long as they have fundamentally good values, and they do. I've seen them be really great with others. I've seen them – you know, do things for other people that makes my heart just swell with pride. And I have heard from other parents when they're out of my sight that they are amazing kids. So I'm going to go with that. But if, you know, Sebastian right now struggling a little bit in school, here's a kid that's been A's and B's, but now he's struggling. He's holding some C's and had a couple D's that are, we'll see if they're coming back up. And I said to Travis, who is totally of a different mindset than I am in this, he's a lot more rigorous and that's the God- willing that's the you know that's the reason that you stay together with somebody because they are the opposite of you and in many cases they are the best of you mm. uh, but he's 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 towing the line you know he wants to see the strength and the character come out of these kids and grades are one way to see the results and and i'm just saying like let's let sebastian have a few weeks let's let him have this first quarter he said i've, I've got this dad i've got this i got this okay Well, if you don't get this, you're going to get it. But it's going to have to be because you figure this out. Because if I micromanage you when you get to college in just four more years, what are you going to do then? I can't manage you then so, I don't know. We're just trying, Darren. You, I, you're you going to be the one giving advice soon. I mean, no. my triplets are nothing compared to all your kids.
1: No, listen. I'm not giving anyone any advice. I just got <laughs> off of a three-day weekend vacation. I'm sure that the JW Marriott down in San Antonio has <laughs> has barred us for life. Um, you know, <laughs> it was just a bad thing.
0: Donut Council like... <laughs> left some crumbs. Is that we, what happened? We that... left
1: a few crumbs. I mean, you know, some people love us and people hate us down there. There were a lot of tips thrown right. around. Um, <laughs> but I don't have You know, I I don't have any advice, but I will say this, you know, you and I share a connection as Coca-Cola scholars. Yes. You know, the the company gave us some money way back in the day to go to school. And I thought about a dinner that you and I had up in Seattle a a month ago. And I, I noticed this, that you would not allow your kids. None of them jumped on the phone. They were not on the phone during dinner. And I think maybe it was Maddie who sort of motioned towards a phone, and you gave her this look. You're like, "Hey, I know you're not. I'm gonna kill you. (laughs) I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna
0: kill." Yeah, no. This is the thing. I thought I was so clever. I learned how to turn off their data. I thought I could shut their phones down, and 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 I was just, I was so proud of myself. I was like, "You know what? We're gonna have some peace in this house. You're not gonna be on the phone all the time, and you certainly are not gonna be on the phone during dinner time." And I had this turned off, and they were like, "Oh, that really sucks," but they weren't upset enough which kind of bothered me. It turned out that I was turning off their data, but they had Wi-Fi. So they were just doing everything <laughs> they were doing. So I, every time I turn around, there's another cheat to something. So i just finally set the rule and said, you know what, if we're not gonna, we used to take away their phones. If they didn't have A's and B's, they lost their phones. And this year, Travis and I said, you know what, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna let them screw around with their phones. And if they intend on wasting their life away at the expense of everything else, now, this is just pissing off Travis because he is absolutely not for this. But I just – we we finally sat down, and we made a family charter, which is just another way of saying we're going to have a constitution, which is just another way of saying these are the rules, and if you don't follow them, we're going to punish you. But we let the kids come up with something, and that was basically going to be how they were going to be you know, rewarded or appropriately scolded if they didn't follow through with the charter. And one of the things that they came up with was that if we don't do things the right way, then we should lose our phones. But at least they came up with that. So, But one of the ways of just minimizing use was that during the dinner time, we are going to talk. We are going to spend time together. It is the only time of day we really do talk to each other. So let's not have the phones interrupt that.
1: Well, I got to tell you, the the Roberts family, aka the Donut Council, we also adopted the no phones at the dinner table. Uh, and this is basically my wife would tell you that's just for me um, because yeah, yeah, my yeah. kids don't have phones but I, I thought about that conversation I thought to myself wow that was one of the first meals I've had in a while where I wasn't checking something or responding to something and it was a good night so I, I appreciate you showing me you know that good old human interaction is still a good thing
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of the few moments in our life where we can have peace but yes yeah, that, that was it that okay was
1: here's it. here's the lightning Right here it is okay so Two-minute drill. You us say you have one last tweet to humanity. Jason, this is it for you. Done. This is it. And you're going to get the – I'm going to give you the extra characters. What did you get? Dorsey gave us, what, 220 characters or something. So you got one last message to the world in the form of a tweet. What would it be?
0: What would it be? I didn't vote for him.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, actually, <laughs> let's, maybe um, you knew me as I intended to be. Yeah, that would be Hmm,
1: like it. Like it. I like it. Okay, here's one for you. Let's say you have to create a class and you're gonna give this class a title. It is gonna be the class that every college student in the world has to take. So this is the mandatory Jason Feldman course. Yeah. What would the title of that class be that every student college student in the world would take?
0: Finding and using your superpower.
1: Ooh. I'm actually going to – I'm going to steal that. I'm writing that nope. down. I'm going to steal that. Okay, here's the last one. Tell me. What is the title of the book that you have not written?
0: <laughs> Commanding My Destiny and 101 Other Things That I Think I Can Do Too. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't, know. I don't. Jason, hey, thanks for joining the tribe. You have you have sprinkled some wisdom on us today, and we appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in.
0: It is my pleasure, Darren. I miss you. I love you, and it was good to meet everybody on the tribe.
1: Hey, I love you, brother. Have a good one.
0: You too. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. All right, tribe. Thank you so much. And I mean that. Thank you for listening to today's show. For show notes and to get goodies to all of the links from the show, visit a tribe called yes.com. That's a tribe called yes.com. And I have one ask for you. If you like the show, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It would really help us to spread the gospel of the tribe. And finally, special thanks to Samantha Skinner and Jacob Weiss, our co-producers and partners in crime for serving up incredible episodes every single week from the University of Texas. Now go out there this week, slay some dragons, and keep saying yes.